Hello and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just finding us here on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can be a uh, producer of the show by putting your questions into our question engine, Mukana, and really contributing to the direction that we take these. So really, we're looking for your questions to answer about media and virtual production. And usually we spend uh, um, our second hour, uh, spend some time on something we want to spend uh, focus in on either a guest or a topic. Saturday is our education hour. So we'll be looking to Dave Trotman later on to find out about how to make video for the classroom. Really looking forward to that. So stick with us for our second part of our show. Let's get into our first question, TJ. Thank you, Josh. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Paul Alhos from Austin, Texas is first up this morning with a uh, question. How do you handle costs associated with travel and logistics? Go ahead, Dave. I'm going to presume you're talking about costs with, say, a paying project with a client and maybe a corporation you're doing something for. Uh, it's always good when starting those negotiations to indicate that travel and distance and wear and tear is going to be included in the contract, and you have to agree with them about how much you're going to bill for that. Uh, for work I did in the government, uh, there was a standard rate for travel, um, and I had to travel quite a lot of distance for those three years. Um, and some of the travel was paid for because it was airfare related. Um, it was um, 44 cents a kilometer, I believe, and it's probably more than that now. So that's how the, the government agreed that ca uh, calculations could be done for the billing. And uh, also when I was a, um, I guess you call them a stringer when you work for somebody far away, but uh, San Francisco company had me shooting things here around Edmonton in the uh, middle of Alberta. And uh, we did not have a travel uh, bill or fee for that. And they were fairly clueless about how far away things were in Canada. So they gave me a job that was um, a five-hour drive away in February, which in Canada is a life-risking operation. And so we had to go off. The I, I was on the phone with them, I'm sure, for about half an hour, trying to explain to them that if you look on the map, and put a ruler next to it. I've just driven from San Francisco into Colorado. So that is what you've asked me to do today. And I'm going to charge a, a travel fee for that. And they never did agree to that travel fee because it didn't fit the contract we had. And so I never had to do that work. But it is a very important thing. And some of my clients get a, you know, I'm being nice to them if I don't charge for travel, because I travel that kind of distance almost every day. And the other thing is because I'm incorporated, all those travel costs actually in kilometers can be deducted in my taxes. So if my car is used for commercial purposes, as it was, and registered with my company, I was able to deduct mileage up to about 61,000 kilometers a year. Thank you for that, Dave. Good, Nigel. Yeah, I think there's two or three different things to attack this answer. As Dave said, always make sure in your contracts you're really clear that travel and other logistic expenses are addition, they're not included in it. Uh, the second thing I would tell you is, I think it's worth having a clear view of what you are and are not going to claim for. Uh, actually write it down like it's your business decision, so that when you get into the point of an expense, you know what you're going to do, and you can have maximum transparency. I can't tell you the number of people who have lost jobs or lost deals because they weren't transparent about their expenses, they weren't clear, and whether they were fiddling or not, it made them look like they were. When you've done that, 
I would suggest you get a free Expensify account, which is a really great way to track it. You can add a credit card. I travel quite a lot, so I actually just have one credit card I use for my travel expenses. It automatically goes into Expensify. You could do that for other expenses. The only exception I have is we have another credit card, which we call our dodgy credit card, that if we are somewhere where we don't know what's going on, it's a gas station we're nervous of, someone's going to walk away with a card, then we use the dodgy card. And that means that if someone uh, hacks it, steals it, swipes it or something, the rest of your life doesn't get destroyed, just one card does. That'll get you out of dodgy, I guess, if you're in trouble. I'm going to adopt that. Yes, that's a good idea. I, I wonder too, so um, time is money as well. And obviously making the expense of traveling to different places incurs its own expenses for travel fees or wear and tear on vehicles. But time is money as well. And um, one thing that I've not really done a good job of in the past, but might consider in the future is when a client insists on things that are in person and require travel, offering a sort of a Delta comparison about if a uh, digital alternative were to be used, um, what would be the savings? What would be the difference in it? And um, like I said, besides the actual cost of travel, my time is valuable too in making the, com- the, the commute to be places before, after, being ready ahead of time, being in an environment that I don't necessarily have all of the resources uh, available if I were you know, working remotely. So it's something to keep in mind um, whenever uh, thinking about our costs and the, just really the overall expense of a project about what digital options are available and what that might mean. Um, where this really gets uh, impactful is when you start multiplying this by um, going digital where several of the participants and attendees, um, instead of shipping them in, having hotels and uh, different um, stay arrangements, they can take advantage of digital first, have much less of an impact on their day. And oftentimes you're able to get people to attend your events like guests if you are able to bring a digital option as opposed to have to go through all the, the hassle of traveling. When you've, when you've been away from it for a little while, it, uh, <laughs> you do it again, you remember uh, all of the travails of travel. Go ahead, Dave. Well, ironically, you brought up a thing in my head because the work I was doing for about three years with the government was to teach people how to do video conferencing and use smart boards. And uh, I spent a lot of time going around to all these different offices. There were a hundred of them, training people and showing them and then doing tech support. And at the end, I was able to write an annual report for the department in which it tabulated how much savings they had in the last year from people not having to travel. And uh, it's ironic, they paid me a lot of money in order to save them millions. So that's logistic advantage for the government. Next question. Vincent Alvarez from Bellingham, Washington is up next. I have a Sony HDR TV and he gives a model number. How do I better adjust the settings so I can see the HDR capabilities other than hiring a professional? And will I see the difference with tomorrow's Super Bowl? Yeah, TJ. What I recommend is doing a basic um, consumer control adjustment using, uh, let's say, like the um, Digital Video Essentials by Joe Kane or similar DVD of that type. There are some that have specific HDR content on them. So if you have 
a Blu-ray player that has HDR capabilities that can play that, you will be able to see that. And just dialing in some of those controls to get your brightness and your contrast um, kind of set from what you can from the the tint and, and whatnot and the TV will really help um, bring your picture in. And one of the most important things, I think, set your TV to its um, film or natural state. Each each brand has its own kind of thing, but that kind of gives you the best um, uh, setting where you can make adjustments. Mitchell? I've got a few uh, Sony TVs here, uh, recent uh, vintages. The XBRs are LED. They can get very bright. Um, the uh, settings for HDR generally are, do you want to use it or not? There's not a lot of tweaking uh, available for HDR settings. And I think the main reason for that is, like uh, like most uh, uh, manufacturers, uh, they buy themselves their panels from the similar uh, manufacturer. I think there's only like four or five of them out there that make the actual panels. And then they sort of excel at the electronics that allows it to uh, display uh, the images. Sony has their own style of doing things. And they also have uh, what they call the X1 processor. And the X1 uh, is responsible for constantly adjusting things like brightness and adjust the thing you normally would tweak for a uh, sporting event uh, is being done by that processor built into the uh, into the TV so best to let it do its job because it stores in its memory this huge database of different scenes and different setups and uh, emphasizes the color the brightness and, and luminance and contrast in all those particular areas by directing processor control to those uh, individual areas and doing it very, very quickly. Guy? Yeah, I got to take a tour of the Thursday night football truck, and it's amazing how much uh, goes into the uh, back end of making sure that picture is using all the color science and data that you possibly can. So that was Thursday night football, which has the most advanced trucks. I don't know if the NFL will have the exact same setup, but I know that there's techs that are making sure that those colors look amazing. So I think you will see a difference this year. Uh, what I use to calibrate mine is um, get an Apple TV if you don't already have one. And then with an iPhone, there you walk through this process where you hold up the phone and this little QR code-like thing will come up. And then you just uh, let it play through all the different colors and it'll adjust and it'll it'll make sure that it does all these different saturation sweeps and things like that that'll help you dial it in with just a phone and an Apple TV. If you don't have one, you're up in Bellingham. I'm not too far away. So holler at me in Discord if you need a hand. Wow, what an offer. Thanks, Guy. Let's go to our next question. Up next, we have Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas. Best mic for an instructor of a fitness class. Mitchell, do you have any expertise in this area of fitness? Oh, well, you did have to ask that part. I have no expertise <laughs> in fitness, but I do have some suggestions on microphones. Uh, you want to wear a head worn. That's probably makes the most sense. Omni. Um, as far as uh, uh, suggestions, uh, I would hazard a guess that a DPA would be a good place to start. Uh, it's the highest costing one. And uh, maybe a countryman. Go guy. Yep, Mitchell's on the right path there. So I'm wearing the DPA 4066. Um, I do watch a lot of these Peloton and actually do work out, Mitchell. So I, I've been keeping an eye on what they're using. I haven't seen what they're wearing in their body pack transmitter. So that's the big difference. I, judging by the size of the pack, I think it's Electrosonics SSM. So you got to look at the complete path. It's not just a matter of the mic. It's how are they 
how are they transmitting it? Because that'll make a difference as to uh, their comfort level, especially uh, some of the floor exercises. I was noticing that they would wear something that allowed it to push to the side so that they weren't, if they're laying on their back, that transmitter wasn't digging in. Or they'll do something uh, like on the cyclist ones that I watched, they'll do something higher up the back. So it's a complete chain. But yeah, DPA 4066, and the new one is called Core. It's about a $785 microphone. And then you still need the other piece, which is. Uh, the connector. So I have mine on XLR, but you can get uh, for wireless transmitters, you can get a bunch of different uh, connectors. So that's the nice thing about the DPAs is you could swap them to uh, electro connectors, TA5, so eight, uh, eighth inch uh, mini, or if you're using Sure or XLR, as I just showed. But yeah, that's the mic or the H6 on the countryman side for uh, a little less money. The important thing is going to be the clip that goes up uh, on, on the collar, and that'll That'll, if they're bouncing around, that'll keep it from uh, that cable shuffle. And professional sound folks will have some other ways of uh, putting that uh, cable so that it, um, with either uh, Joe Sticky or something to uh, make it so that cable doesn't uh, uh, contribute to noise rattling all the way up to the microphone capsule. And then there's sweat. You, you got to be aware that people sweat. And so these higher end mics can handle uh, being completely submerged. So be aware if you get something cheap that it might get damaged pretty quick if it can't handle uh, sweat and moisture. Thanks, Guy. It's pretty comprehensive. And I wonder, too, since, Guy, you're uh, talking head and stationary, for the more movement, do you have to use more um, of like the wind guards or maybe if you're outside? Um, uh, do you usually add those on? I don't like them, but uh, some people will wear them because if you are moving fast, you can get a, a rush of air hitting that capsule and that will create some some additional noise. And yeah, if you're outdoors, you're going to need something on there. But if you're indoors and you're not uh, moving fast, then I don't think you have to worry about it. I mean, I'm not moving fast enough in this chair to warrant having one. Plus, they look kind of goofy if you have some of the mics with the bigger capsules. I mean, they just looks like you're a CB radio truck driver or something. Yeah, I'd say you don't need it indoors. Well, you've slowed down since Cinegear guy. Let's go to our next question. <laughs> uh, Tony Mobley from Newman, Georgia wants to know, Dr. Clark, what do you think of the Bigfoot microphone? Tony? I was asking, uh, I, I was kind of throwing the ball to myself by asking Dr. Clark this question. I've purchased two of them for the House of Worship. And I'm having trouble, <laughs> although I purchased two of them, the membership that I gave them to have not used them yet. And so I hadn't really pushed them with it, but I wanted to know what Dr. Clark thought about uh, his and is he happy with it? Good, Dr. Clark. Thank you. Um, I'd say it's still on probation, Tony. Um, it's big. As the, as the name suggests, it's not only the foot that's big, but the microphone capsule itself is large. And I had been using um, an over-the-ear mic up close to my lips and, and didn't get any complaints from uh, semi-ruthless reviews or previews uh, as I did sound checks on uh, Saturday mornings. Uh, but... Um, it's certainly an advantage to me. It feels like an advantage to not uh, be all wired up as I was with the over-the-ear mic. Um, 
But on my recent sound checks, I've been asked to, can, can you move the mic closer? Can you move the mic closer? Can you move the mic closer? So I suspect that it's, there's an, an issue possibly with um, its sensitivity or its sensitivity at, at, at the distance that it's convenient with my setup here. I don't have it on a, on a um, tripod. Um, it's sitting on the desk. And I'm limited as to how I can uh, move it around and, and get it closer to my lips. So it was cheap. They were on sale. Um, and they look cool. Um, sounds like I'm, looks like I'm playing with the big guys, you know. Uh, but um, I, d I don't see it as, uh, and I think in a house of worship situation, its size uh, may may be an impediment to uh, using it in that that kind of situation, but you'll have to ask the uh, the users or the non-user, the reluctant users. So that's my uh, non-technical review of my Bigfoot mic. Yeah, I, I apologize. I wasn't clear. So it's it's the use for our Zoom services, and um, the the membership in various various locations. And I, they have it in the room, but they're not using it. So I just wanted to see if I needed to encourage them further. And I got both of them for like twenty nine dollars each. So it was a good deal. And um, we needed a little help with the audio for the membership. Yeah, I can comment, um, Tony and Chris. I have uh, three of them I use for participants, and I bought them for the same reason that you did, for the quality to cost ratio of it. It's a decent mic. It's a um, Yeti clone, basically. Um, the one thing I do notice with uh, those Bigfoots and the Yetis is that their gain is not only ample and abundant, but probably more so. I usually never turn the gain up past its uh, base point. In fact, um, to get the best signal to noise, often I'll have it close and in the frame, which does sound um, remarkably similar to the setup I'm using now, if I can get it real close. The key is that if I'm using it on Zoom, I'll turn the, uh, the Zoom audio down. Another nice feature that it has for participants is it does have a headphone jack, so you can have people listen in and have um, not using speakers, but have the microphone. So it does decent as far as a, a low cost participant mic. Would you like to weigh in more, uh, Dr. Clark? Yes, uh, today is the first day I've used the headphone jack on the Bigfoot and it's working great. I got some coaching from Mickey before we came on air, um, but that's certainly uh, another positive feature that uh, Tony might introduce to his colleagues in the House of Worship application that might tip them into actually plugging it in. Yeah, you want to remember to turn off the speakers for all the goodness of not having the the other um, the other sound competing with it and your echo cancellation. The other nice thing about that is that there is a there is a knob for the volume, so you can set your appropriate gain and adjustment if you can do it in software for like in Zoom, and then you'll even have side tone um, that you can adjust based on how much you turn the volume up. You'll hear 
the actual direct feed from the microphone back. So it does kind of give you an idea about whether you're using good mic technique and staying consistent, or if you're talking off the side or off axis, you, it kind of reminds you with that. So not bad for a $30 microphone. Let's go to our next question. Ronnie Hafsi from Tromsø, Norway is up next. Have you compared software noise removers like the Waves Clarity X VX added to the audio hijack chain, et cetera, instead of a hardware solution like Cedar or Mix Pre? Mitchell? Uh, Josh, do I have the permission uh, to do the long form answer or the short form answer? Uh, whichever, whichever you like, sir. <laughs> okay. Some of this has to do with subjective uh, analysis of what it sounds like. And um, when I'm uh, doing the research, which I am right now, on getting rid of all of the noise that I have in my room, my room's pretty quiet, but uh, as a reader, we're supposed to have absolute pristine audio, which means no noise at all. Um, I'd have to say that listening to all these various plugins, whether they're software or hardware specific, um, I'm liking uh, the noise assist on the Mix Pre. It seems to be purpose-built specifically to run on a Mix Pre or an 833 or an 888 or a Scorpio or whatever other product that, uh, that supports uh, uh, that. The problem with software plugins is that they introduce latency, and latency means lip sync and things like that. And I think that it causes problems when you have to run a real-time software plugin uh, via Audio Hijack or any other device that uh, might uh, uh, support plugins. And uh, what happens is is that the comparison between a purpose-built device for uh, cutting down noise and a piece of uh, hardware that may run software plugins like the Clarity um, is that the, uh, the, the software works great, particularly in post, but not so particularly uh, in real time. So if you want real-time uh, production, um, I, would say, I would lean you towards the hardware, and that means the Cedar or the, uh, the Mix Pre uh, using the, uh, the Noise Assist or the uh, Cedar DNS2, which we were talking about uh, off, uh, offline here. So uh, in my personal opinion on the two uh, I like the sound of the noise assist. I think they spent a lot of time, a lot of resources, making it sound very natural. The cedar, it's possible to misadjust it, so it starts chewing away on your on your voice a little bit. I've, I've played with it, uh, not here, but uh, elsewhere, and um, it does a great job. And if I had to use clarity uh, with waves, I would probably employ a sound grid, which is a hardware device purpose-built to run those plugins, but all those other plugins from Isotope and all the other guys, um, it's best to, to use them in post, not in a real-time scenario. Thank you, Mitchell. I have no further questions. Let's go to our next question. Hi, Al Hammond wants to know, what is the current recommendation for super cheap headset or tabletop mic for a mobile kit to send to interviewees? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I think that Pulsen still from b is a pretty good deal with a some kind of tech rise or some USB uh, $20 little adapter. That's, that's at the cheap end. Um, I know that Tucker and Jonas have a kit that they're sending out. Um, they're from us. They're buying the uh, Sennheiser Lavalier USB-C mic. It's uh, $59. So that's a, an inexpensive solution. It's not a head-worn mic. And it's not a tabletop mic, but it's kind of that middle ground. So that's a, another option. So two, two recommendations there. Yeah, I think I've seen... I've used um, this one too. It's the Samson Go. It's a laptop top <laughs> microphone where you kind of clip it to the top of a microphone. And I will say that um, 
sometimes if your participant has a mic array microphone, it'll it might even give this one a run for its money if you can't get it within close proximity to to keep up. But um, typically, if you have your your typical corporate laptop, um, that's a that's a step up, and it does offer the headphone output capabilities too. So a real compact um, option, and it's just the the footprint though is amazingly small for for what it is. So that's something that's helpful and um, not not a huge capsule too. So sometimes that's the case. Um, one thing you can do um, if you have a, a very um, non-obtrusive microphone like this uh, and you're doing recordings, you can take it out and post. If you just uh, remove the microphone with it, sometimes you can, uh, people don't like to see the microphone, you'll get the, the benefit of the audio, uh, but you can remove it. Let's go to our next question. Paul Wahos from Austin, Texas comes in. Neva Beta is a new search engine with AI and search all rolled into one. Or is the AI really just machine learning? Nigel? So I've used it and played with it. Uh, I, I don't get it. I'm not sure what uh, the AI is bringing me. I asked a few sort of standard searches to see what it would answer. It didn't feel to me like anything particularly different that I would get from Google or uh, DuckDuckGo or any of those things. The AI seemed to want to, uh, you know, I asked, I very bluntly asked about myself and it produced a, a bio of me, which I think you could find on my website. So I, I didn't I didn't get what it was trying to give me. John, did you get a chance to try it out? Very briefly, I did. And I think it's a really interesting concept. I'm surprised they're marketing it as the AI-based browser. I'm sure they're doing it just because the popularity of things like ChatGPT. It does um, integrate LLMs or large language models in it, some of its responses. And the one I tried was really interesting. It actually gave the sources of where it was pulling data from as it was summarizing it. If I was running the company, I would probably market it more on its ability to personalize and customize as like the main point because you can actually weight your own search results instead of assuming an algorithm would weight your results for you. You can say, I really like LinkedIn or I really like results from YouTube or these news sources and it will uh, give you what you've asked for, which is a really interesting concept. And um, especially on political news articles, there's a little slider at the top that you can make it more or less uh, biased or you can make it more biased in whichever direction you want, I would say. So it could be a really interesting teaching tool where you're in a classroom and you're pulling up a current event story and you can start, it starts in the center and you can say, this is what it looks like if you're uh, pulling in more uh, articles on the right side and this on the left side. And you can show people practically how your browsing habits can influence the algorithms and the biases you receive and how, how different those experiences can be. So I thought that was interesting from a teaching perspective. Next question. Next question is from Vincent Alvarez in Bellington, Bellingham, Washington, and who asks, I'm having to run a meeting in a large old wooden barn. They use a simple PA, an anchor brand for voice only, but in a regular sized room with 12 foot ceilings. In a very large open area, will they need special considerations, speaker placement perhaps? Audience is about 80 people. Let's have Dave and then Jeffrey. Yeah, I've actually worked in large spaces like that. And there are a couple of things I found to be a really good advantage. One is a setting for the microphone before you do the output. So if they have a small mixer or whatever handling their microphone, you have an input of about half, maybe two-thirds, not all the way up. 
Then you go to the output and bring it up until you can hear it on the speakers. But you bring it up to about eight and then leave it there or bring it back, depending on how loud you have amplifiers on your speakers. So if there's separate control for the speaker levels rather than the mixer output and the mixer is not driving the speakers, then you have a third layer. Set the loudness of the speakers according to how it sounds in the room. Don't adjust the output from the mixer. If you have a powered mixer and it is powering the speakers, then be very careful with your output there and keep that level lower than you expect. But then the placement of the speakers is important. And I find in a room, 80 people is actually good because it's about 10 rows of eight people or eight rows of 10. And if you get the speakers on either side of the group and aim them 45 degrees toward the group and away from the stage or the microphones themselves, then you're going to get more loudness in the region that the people are listening instead of from all the way back at the stage. And this allows you to turn the volume down on the speaker outputs or the levels on the amplifier and that people have clarity near them and are listening from a distance. Uh, it's even better when you have huge rooms like a thousand and then you notice in theaters they'll put speakers all the way down the walls so that they don't have to have them as loud because they're closer to you. So if you can get the speakers positioned, I don't know how far away you can get them from the stage. I don't know your layout, but if the cords are long enough and the stands can be off to the side where they won't be tripped up, then you can aim them at the audience at an angle. And then you'll have less, less difficulty with feedback because the speakers are nowhere near the, uh, the source of the sound. People can speak softly into microphones and they tend to, uh, operators tend to reach over and turn up the mic volume that's not helping. You turn up the output volume to let that soft speaker be heard at the level they're speaking, amplified to the speakers. If you turn up the input volume, of course, you threaten to reach threshold levels where the feedback begins. That's all I've got for you unless I were at the venue and saw opportunities to change the height, uh, treat the room with curtains, uh, have other options for reducing all of the nasty echo in a big room. Yeah, Jeffrey. Yeah, and it also depends on whether you're how you're having your audience uh, in the in the crowd. Are they all going to be sitting in tables, round tables? Are they going to be sitting in chairs? It's is it just going to be a theater seating uh, setup or whatnot. Uh, the the anchor speakers will probably work for just speakers. If you're going to do more than speakers, like music and and things like that, then you're definitely going to want to have something a little bit more powerful. Uh, but a PA on the stick always works uh, works in many different situations. The barn, of course, yeah. If you have, if there's scrims there, if there's, uh, if you can try and close it up as much as possible with curtains, that's a that's a great idea. And then, of course, yeah, get, getting uh, more than two sets of speakers. What I would probably do is I'd have two sets of fifteen right uh, on the front stage, as far apart from each other as as Dave said, and then have a second set about halfway down. Uh, and of course, everything in low volume. And of course, if you can RTA the room, real-time analysis, then uh, I would highly suggest doing that to try and get the right frequencies so you don't have to pump up and down the, the uh, volume to get all those squelches and squeaks. Mitchell? All great advice from uh, the preceding uh, gentleman answering. Uh, there's a lot of questions about that space, so I'll have to deal in generalities here. How big is the space? What are the dimensions of the room? Um, is it a portable sound system? Does it have to be a portable sound system? A uh, general rule of thumb with uh, speakers and uh, amplifying a, uh, a person on a microphone at the head of the table or on the stage 
is that the more speakers you have, the lower the volume has to be in order to get a more even distributed uh, uh, sound coverage. And that's probably the ideal situation. And as Jeffrey suggested, if you were to place speakers in a distributed manner down the hallway, um, it at, at, uh, allows you to, to adjust the, uh, the delay and the distribution of the speakers as it gets to the other end of the room because inverse square affects sound and some sound arrives at different speeds depending on the speed of sound. So some people like to tend to delay everything so everything comes to the same spot. And that means that the sound has to be a little louder in the front, a little softer, a little softer as you uh, work your way down. I'm getting way too deep on this. But if it's a portable system, uh, do your best to keep it uh, in front of the stage, in front of the uh, the microphone. Uh, try not to blast out the people in the front of the uh, in the room. Get it up off the ground. Probably the best uh, move you can make right there. And if you're having problems with uh, too many reflections in the barn, a feedback suppressor in the mixer will do wonders. Dave, just a last point that once you've set it up before the crowd gets there, you think the loudness and everything is going to be fine. But once the crowd sits in the room they're going to find that it's a little quieter and they'll have a tendency to try and turn it up. Try not to do that unless you actually are getting complaints from the audience that they can't hear anything. But generally, the sound you make in the room when it's empty is going to appear really good until people sit in the chairs and then you'll think it's quieter. But it isn't. It's just that people are in the room and the sound is not moving around as much as you thought before. All right. Thank you. Very comprehensive answer from our panelists. Also, uh, besides our technical issues, we do have with us our education folks for our first hand. So feel free to put in your general education questions. Let's go to our next question. Ronnie Hofsey from Trump Sunore wants to know, how do you make sure audio video sync is perfect? Are you using best guess or tools like sync it? And he provides a link. Mitchell. On zoom, it'll never be perfect, but it'll be adequate. Um, I just my hands together. I know that's controversial, but uh, you can hear the, uh, the how everything arrives and how it works. Another way is try not to introduce uh, too much processing in your mic chain uh, when you're sending it separately via USB into your computer that's sending it out because it's going to introduce some kind of a uh, time delay or latency there, and that'll affect the, uh, the sync too. What I do, um, and people don't like it, but I do it anyhow, is that I run my audio chain into my main camera, into a digital input on it, not the main camera microphone input. And uh, because the uh, the audio is uh, muxed with the HDMI input onto my ATEM, um, it's going to be coincident and in sync uh, to the frame point. So that's my solution. It may not be yours, but uh, works fine for me. Mitchell, are you able to show your uh, audio chain? I can just by punching my lower third Fenwick uh, 414, 205 into an AFEX, and then the AFEX goes right into my FX3. Uh, what you can't see there is that uh, you can buy a digital adapter that goes on that camera that uh, supplies a digital signal directly to the, uh, the internal workings of the camera. Um, generally, a camera preamp, uh, the little uh, 3.5 millimeter connector, is uh, not a good place uh, to be sending audio because almost every case, uh, at least on my Sony's, they're noisy. Thanks, Mitchell. Next question. Is uh, from Paul Walhos in Austin, Texas, who wants to know, compare and contrast the Insta360 link with the PTZ cameras Paul Richards showed us uh, and when or if these technologies will merge into the ultimate webcam. Jeffrey? 
merge into the ultimate webcam, I don't think that that, because that, these are basically two different tools for two different needs. The link is something that you would use at your desktop if you're you're just doing something like this. Uh, the PTZ, you know, and in all honesty, yeah, the, the camera I'm looking at right now is a PTZ Optics 20X, the uh, 1080 version, it's called the G2. And uh, so that can be used at the desk, but that's uh, this camera can also be used in, in a big hall, like that barn we just talked about. Uh, I could put this camera in the back and I'd have a good throw of video. Uh, it's got an uh, optical zoom as opposed to a digital zoom. It does have a digital zoom too, but with a link, you only have like a 4X digital zoom. This will go, uh, depending on the camera, can go from 12X to 20X to 30X just on an optical zoom. And then you have an additional 16X in the digital zoom. The link is a half inch sensor, the PTZ optics, and we're talking just the Move 4K. Uh, there's other versions of the PTZ optics camera that, uh, of cameras that uh, you can take a look at. But the Move 4K, uh, that has a one and 1.8 inch sensor. Uh, so it's uh, it's not great for lower light situations, but if you're doing something like uh, 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 shooting at a stage or something like that, you're going to be fine. Uh, the f-stop is another thing that uh, that that uh, can, is different between the two. It's a fixed 1.8 on the link, whereas the depending on which PTZ optics you get, you can get anywhere from 1.5 to 1.8 and going up to 3.5 in an f-stop. Uh, the other thing is that it's, uh, the link is USB controlled, so you have to have it connected to a computer and a USB port, whereas the uh, PTZ optics, you, you can choose HDMI, you can choose SDI, you can choose network, including NDI, and then you can even uh, plug in a joystick. So as you can see, I can go on and on with this, but there's just, there, there's, two different, uh, it's basically two different types of uh, systems there. And uh, for whatever your need, that's where you're going to go. Guy? Well done. That was a great answer. Uh, yeah, looking at what uh, Insta360 has been doing, they, they've made a lot of action cameras over the years. So I think that their company just being able to produce so many cameras was uh, what gave them this opportunity to, to take this larger chip and put it in, in a camera for under 300 bucks, which is just mind blowing. So the picture quality, if you're able to get that camera close, is going to be anything that PTC Optics has for half the price. So it's pretty amazing. But where, like Jeffrey said, where you you fall short is if you need to zoom in. So there's 12x, there's 20x, there's 30x cameras. But then you also got to look at the entire chain. Where are you going? So do you need uh, something like HDMI or SDI for the connection or some of the higher end cameras like the UE150 even have a fiber. So what happens there is you can get the full blown color and even on that camera, you can even go log. So you, it just depends on where you want to go. And then do you need all this AI capability that we showed uh, that PTZ Optics um, was nice enough to come in and demonstrate for us? Because uh, there's tracking things in there that are, that are coming fast that are pretty amazing. But then if you want picture quality, just straight up best picture quality that fr7 from sony is just amazing so sensor size ai zoom there, there and then color fidelity through through your cable connection there's a, a lot going on as far as the look and especially the budget because we're talking about a twelve thousand dollar fr7 versus a 299 dollar uh webcam from insta360 with the link uh, plus one everything that everyone has said in addition sometimes here in office hours you'll hear uh, the question come up, how do I get my Insta360 link into my ATEM, right? So considering your chain uh, is something that's important. Let's go to our next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, is there evidence that motion tracking webcams increase audience engagement? Mitchell? Um, the only evidence I can provide is my personal opinion. Um, I think in moderation, it works well. But as soon as I start seeing a lot of this going on and people are starting to make gestures and I think it's getting in the way of what the what the uh, the webcam tracking is supposed to do. I think it should be subtle and operate very much like if somebody were operating the camera as opposed to it, uh, a zoom that's going from one room part of the room to the other. Um, presets seem to work well for me. I mean, my personal opinion. But uh, please uh, cut back on the amount of motion. It, get, it makes me seasick. Jeffrey, the the. Uh, um the increasing of audience engagement uh, it's actually been proven uh in years past uh, that's why we have uh tv shows that have what's called shaky cam and that's where it looks like the camera's kind of moving as they're zooming in they're zooming out and of course any type of video where you can do cuts and, and switches and movement at, at, it keeps the eye visually engaged of course with that said it's more about the audio than it is about the video because some of these uh, motion tracking cameras they don't they don't. Uh, they don't match the distance. If I if I'm going back and forth between the uh, between one end of the stage and the other, and it's not keeping up with me, then it's kind of pointless. But if it's if we got something that like these newer cameras, like the PTZ optics, that does have a better uh, uh, AI chip in there and can follow me back and forth, then I think it's going to be perfect. As long as it doesn't get too shaky and too confused as to which direction to go. I think it's going to be a great item for, uh, for visual, uh, keeping a visual contact going. Next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas wants to know, how would you place eight Wi-Fi hotspots around a five-acre property with a lot of trees, RVs, buildings, etc.? What switches would you use and what Wi-Fi hotspots with waterproof enclosures? So I don't have a product recommendation for you, Paul, but sometimes the line of sight is important. Less so, <clears throat> excuse me, less so outside than on inside venues. Let's go to our next question. Tony Mobley from Newman is up. There have been several updates to Cinema, Cinemaker and with their close relationship with Zoom, is anyone using Cinemaker? Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask this question because I'm playing with Cinemaker and I know that we're going to have some second hours with it coming up soon. Um, I am amazed. I, I actually had the opportunity to have a conversation with uh, Gary Baker um, this past week and I'm going to be playing with it. I'm excited about uh some of the things that they're doing and they're doing some amazing, they, they have been a long partner with zoom in terms of the integration of Cinemaker. And I'm just going to quickly um, share the website. If you guys don't mind. So. Okay. Can you guys see it? Uh, no, we're just getting black. But uh, Tony, what were some of the okay. um, enhancements this time around for the Cinemaker update? Um, one of the main things, um, everything seems to be more fluid. 
um, there was some, um, I, I would describe it as a choppiness in terms of the way in which some of the things um, work together, but it is definitely uh, much improved. You can tell that they've been working real hard at uh, making it a seamless uh, integration. And uh, I'm really excited about uh, where it's going. My use case <laughs> with, with most of the things that I'm sharing is with the House of Worship. And um, this might be the best way for us to go with the integration because we're using primarily a Zoom meeting for our, our worship experience. Fantastic. Well, keep us updated, Tony, on your progress with that. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, what's a good rule of thumb for sizing a hard drive for data archiving? I'd be coming from a four terabyte hard drive on my 2013 Mac Pro and would want something that would last for a few years. Dave? I was, uh, well, I'm a person who archive a lot and I archive constantly and it's a safety mechanism for any of my clients that I'm not gonna lose any of their data. Um, I've got a three terabyte Western Digital. I think it's nine years old now. And because it's not my main drive, it doesn't do anything other than archiving and pushing things on and keeping projects on and off. It works really well with Thunderbolt to push a lot of large files around like my editing stuff. And it's uh, quick enough for me to, you know, take a whole bunch of files, 20, 30, 40 at a time and, and have them copy off. So it works well in the background, and, and I archive pretty much everything, including past versions of the operating system. Because it doesn't get used a lot and isn't always plugged in, uh, it survives for nine years. So I think reliability is, is pretty good in, in disk hard drives. Uh, my second thing is that if I'm archiving anything for someone else and I need to keep it for years, in case I need to give it to somebody, I'm still using USB sticks. So I get a 256 gigabyte stick and I put projects on them with all the related contracts and everything else. And then I park it, label it, and it's on my shelf. Uh, that would be for quick retrieval. But for all my, uh, all my other stuff, personal stuff, I've got a time machine that dates back to, I think it's 15 years old now, and it's still working good. Jeffrey? Uh, two rules of thumb in my book. First of all, your computer that you're going to buy if you're looking for the hard drive inside of that. Uh, you want to get a hard drive that's going to uh, do what you need to do, but you also want to be able to keep your computer as clean as possible, which means if you're done with a project, get it off your computer. Get it to somewhere else uh, for, uh, for storage. Now, when it comes to external storage, I do a tiered approach. This is the same idea that they do in enterprise, except they'll do like a seven tier backup, which means if you have a file, that file will get uh, backed up seven different times on the, on the system. So if at any point you have to go back to a certain point, you can. Now, my tier system, of course, a lot of people, they can't have a system like that. But what you can do is you can set up a multiple tier system. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I set up my TrueNAS server, which is a freeware software you can put onto a computer and then, of course, put in hard drives and then uh, set it up in a RAID pattern or in a striped pattern. Uh, 
and I won't go into the different uh, versions of that, but the whole idea is you, that's that's my main storage. That's my long-term storage. Everything that I've ever had is on that, on that storage. I have a secondary storage, my old Drobo, which since it's still working, I'm going to use it as a quick backup, which means that anything that I needed to take off my computer or still on my computer gets backed up to the Drobo first. The Drobo then uh, goes to the TrueNAS, and that way I have a tier. So if any hard drive dies in the situation, then I have another place to go to from there. So backing up uh, often, checking all of your hard drives, making sure that they're still working is always a good idea. And then rating, like I said before, is another way to really uh, make sure that your, uh, your content is perfect. But the biggest thing is go from year to year. Because like, for instance, if I look at my 2019 videos, I did about 1.5 terabytes worth of videos that I have to keep. But then next year, all of a sudden I had two to three terabytes worth of uh, videos that I've done. And of course, if you're, if you're growing that way, uh, you can expect your growth, uh, you know, for 2024 to be five or six terabytes. And then you can uh, plan for that type of uh, storage. Mitchell? Um, first of all, uh, four terabytes, a good choice. That's a sweet spot for pricing. You can get those anywhere. Um, best to go with, uh, things like the iron mountain or other, uh, specifically, uh, designed systems for longevity. Uh, you want to make sure they're top shelf in terms of that goes. Um, I like the old fashioned father, excuse me, grandfather, father, son, where you've got three drives and you, uh, you basically rotate through them. Uh, that way, at least you have some version of something on three different drives, not necessarily stored in the same place. Um, and the other thing to do is make sure that you exercise those drives. And you would do that as long as you did the grandfather, father, son thing, because you would be moving that data across them uh, from time to time. But if you go with just one drive and uh, you exercise it every once in a while, you're living on borrowed time because eventually, and it will happen, that drive's going to seize up and now you're in trouble. TJ? Uh, yeah, Mitchell's got it right with the three, two, one method where, you know, three copies, two different places, uh, one of them off site. And, you know, uh, the other rule of thumb is, you know, two is one and one is none. So if you've only got one copy, it's going to disappear on you. And I know from experience that will happen. If you, <clears throat> pardon me, if you do a RAID configuration, make sure you have dual redundant backup uh, drives in that RAID array. I know from experience when I one of my drives went bad and I put a new drive in and the RAID array started to build, during the rebuild, another drive failed. All my data was gone. Nigel? So there's a simple man's uh, or person's answer here is you have a MacBook, so you have Time Machine. So you have the ability for your Mac to do the first level copy that people have talked about automatically. Uh, if you have a four terabyte drive, if you back it up onto a four terabyte drive, you will get one backup and you will struggle to get incremental backups. So I would tell you that when I have like a, a one terabyte drive, I tend to create a three terabyte or more uh, time machine. Then the question is, is that your only backup system? Because then it doesn't follow TJ's idea of, of keeping one off site. Whether that means you back up your time machine or you use a separate tool to back up the critical data uh, to a separate machine. What I do is I don't back up the whole machine. I'm very clear in my machines where my data goes. I manage it into a specific uh, directory. 
that directory I then back up on iCloud as well. So there are much simpler ways of doing it that uh, require you to use the basic Mac and OS capabilities it has. Got our next question. Robert Green from Los Angeles. Super Bowl Tech Check, what are we watching for? Mitchell? Don't tell my Eagles friends, but I'm watching the commercials. Guy? Yeah, having uh, got to go to uh, tour one of the uh, trucks, I'm really interested in the cadence of the cutting, like uh, what shots that they're going to and what rhythm. And uh, the, the replay is really fascinating. You wouldn't believe how much, uh, keep an eye, and I'm going to kind of spoil it for you, but keep an eye on how much replay there is and how many angles of that replay. Uh, when you look at that huge board, you wouldn't believe how many of those are, are instant replay. So um, cadence of the cuts, replay, uh, the Ross expression uh, graphics, uh, something like this one that we saw where the, because this is all pinned, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to see, you know, things that come onto the graphics that come onto the screen that are pinned to um, the action of the, uh, well, pin, pinned to reality, but then they're, they're putting graphics over the top. So uh, having seen behind the scenes, these operators of how they put this stuff together, it's fascinating to see that they have um, a drone. No, I don't know if they'll do it at the Super Bowl, but here in Seattle, when they came, they did a drone that just went straight up and it had graphics that were uh, moving in tandem. So that's what expression can do. So I'm fascinated by that. So that's what I'm looking for is graphics, uh, how the switcher works and the decisions that the producer and the TD are making. So that it's, it's a different world for me to watch the game rather than just uh, watching it for the game's sake. I, I like breaking down the, the technology behind it. It is quite the big show, um, market-wise. It brings all the big guns out, so something we're, we're interested in looking at. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. Douglas asks, for the Super Bowl, for Super Bowl 57 halftime show, Dave Natal, or Natalie, not sure of the pronunciation, famous for mixing the Rolling Stones on a Yamaha PM4000, will be mixing front of house on a Digico Quantum 338. Is this a single data point or the beginning of the end of the analog revival live? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, I know I'm, it's a bit of a stretch. I don't use these devices. Uh, I just play one on uh, uh, office hours once in a while. But um, analog is going to be with us for a long time. I mean, I have a uh, recently purchased Neve 8801, which is from one of their very uh, popular consoles, and it's a single-channel device. It's an analog device, but it happens to have a digital output. So it's analog control, digital set. Um, I think that all of these things, and, and I think a Yamaha, which has been around a long time, I remember seeing them for ages, uh, is going to be with us for quite a while. Um, and uh, combining the two in a hybrid scenario... It just, it just feels like it's going to go on for a long time. Let's go to our next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA. How would our teachers guide students when using AI as a tool? What should the students have in mind when engaging? Go ahead, John. It depends a lot on your student's age. Uh, I work primarily with teenagers and preteens. And so for that age group, their brain's starting to develop to the point where they can really start thinking critically. And it's a great time to exercise that muscle. So what I would encourage them to do is use the tools and then um, ask probing questions about how do they know it's true or what are they trusting or what might be influencing the results they're getting from any sort of AI algorithms. Yeah, I wonder for some of the... Um younger students if the fact that this comes across as a personality and the touring test 
you know, um, factor of it comes in, comes into play as far as how we look at our tools and, and what we expect out of them. But, um, I'm, I'm sure it's something we're going to, we're going to see, uh, more and more as the calculators are allowed by in, into the classroom. Let's go to our next question. Paul Wahoos from Austin, Texas comes in, in the show, the last of us, how did they convert a video game to a TV show? Is the fungus spreading even remotely something we should worry about in real life? Mitchell? Yes, there is fungus among us. Um, I didn't even know it was a game show or game show, that it was a uh, game at some point. Um, same thing with Halo. I know it was huge, but I just sort of uh, watched it and enjoyed it for what it was. And by the way, it's a great show and done very well. A lot of great acting, uh, a little bit of twist in the the zombified people that uh, make it interesting. Jeffrey? The best part about this show is that it came from a video game that was highly regarded with their storytelling to begin with. So the show is basically following a lot of the game. There are some nuances that they had to do away with. Like, for instance, in the game, uh, they, people come in contact with these little spores, and that's what infects them. They, so they had to wear gas masks most of the time while they're walking around the game. In, uh, of course, you can't do that in a show because you don't want to have the actors behind masks. So they, got, they did away with that thing. They did little nuances uh, in some of the episodes, and I'm not going to get into too much detail because that's going to that's gonna invoke some spoilers here. But the whole point is they've been very careful, just like with the Marvel Universe, they've been very careful by looking at the comics, looking at the lore that's already been laid down, and figuring out how can we put it into a specific universe that will tell a story and then, of course, bring it to the audience so they can enjoy it. I can tell you something. Uh, uh, the, the couple of the episodes, we've been introduced to characters that were just uh, that are not going to be around. They've only been around for one episode, but we already miss them as characters and wish they would have had a bigger arc than just one episode. That's how that's how dominant the storytelling is, and they're doing such a great job in getting this genre going, it's just going to be amazing. They've already explained why we wouldn't uh, have this happen to us as a fungal zombie nation. It's not an impossible thing, but uh, the, uh, the probability of it actually happening is very unlikely. Next question. Paul Wahoos from Austin, Texas. Microsoft this week began testing a new chatbot interface for Bing that can sometimes provide a way to sidestep news websites' paywalls, providing glossy conversational answers that draw on media content. Are you okay with this? Dave? Actually, I'm perfectly okay with this. Um, we're in a period of change where information is coming at us in all directions. And having a search engine has helped us to go to the information we're looking for, not just wait for the newspaper to hit the front doorstep. These news sites actually are all using maybe the same sources, especially with international news. If you're getting local news, yeah, the uh, chatbot is probably not going to have that information. And we also know that the learning model for the machine is only dated back to 2021 for most of these models. So you won't really get, yeah, I mean, you get a conversational news report, but you really won't get the details that you probably want to find. That I think is never going to change. Even if you had Time Magazine back in the day, 
you still had other sources you could check to see whether Time Magazine's take on it was the same as, say, The Guardian, or even for us in the modern age, Al Jazeera's viewpoint is very different from the BBC. So when you get into these chatbots, they're only going to rely on the available information, which then is published by these paywall places. But the paywall places are also getting their news from the same feeds or services that are sharing information internationally. So it's not really a change that way. I'm okay with it in that these organizations all share those news feeds and pay for them so that they don't have to send somebody out in the field that far. And I'm okay with AI sort of sorting and collecting and mashing up things because then I get an overview, but I'm never going to rely on it for the details. Jeffrey? Uh, I totally agree with everything that Dave said. Uh, I want sometimes I just want to get the facts of a, of a certain uh, story, and that's what you're going to get uh, is just the facts: uh, who, what, when, where, why, how. If you want the opinions of the reporter, then the paywalls are going to be that. And I know a lot of people that want to find out opinions rather than, uh, as well as the facts. Uh, I don't want to say that they're they're doing one over the other, but. Uh, they want they want that whole why is this important to me type uh, uh, story that's that's going to there, and they of course they just want to read. So if you're going to go to like Bing for a quick uh, news story, you're going to get a uh, two or three sentence uh, item, but then you can go to the the actual news story and get the full blown out article where you can read the who, what, when, where, why, how, and the opinion. Good, Nigel. Uh, all of these sites, Google. Being all of them are not as honest and uncurated as you might think. So I do not believe you can go to one of these websites and get the facts. I think you get a filtered set of facts based on the algorithm. The best thing to do was, is triangulate. Go to multiple different sites, ask multiple different questions, never read the first thing, never believe the first thing you read. If you don't believe me, I can uh, love to have a conversation offline with some searches that you can do in Google that shows that they are curating what they send you, they are not honestly giving you the top results. Well, thank you, panel. And thank you, producers, for our first hour of our tech-related uh, question and answer. But stick with us. We're going to shift gears now and move into our education topic, where Dave Trotman is heading that up. Dave, uh, what do you have for us? Well, today we're going to look into how a video gets made, uh, and specifically one for use in the classroom. So, Welcome, everybody. This is the Education Hour, the second hour on Saturday. We're glad to have people with us, and our producers have already started putting some questions in, so we will get to those. But I promise to give you 11 steps for video production. That is that there are generally, and this is a general thing, uh, for the use of classroom video, I'm not going to talk about the playing it in the classroom. We'll talk about the process before it gets made and how you get up to the point where you've got a thing you can play in your classroom. Uh, all of this was derived from a booklet that I was asked to write back in 1990. Um, I've updated a little bit of it for the modern era, but I'm not going to talk much about digital delivery. I'm going to talk mostly about the relationship between the producer and the subject matter experts, the people who are asking for the video to be made. I've got a few slides I'm going to walk through and uh, hopefully they'll generate some more questions and people will be able to decide what they want to talk about from what I'm saying. I'm going to share here my, uh, there we go. 
So, as I said, this is summarized from a workbook uh, that I gave. Uh, I was asked by the people in the Faculty of Education. Uh, the professors don't have any idea how videos get made, and they wanted a short or um, summarized approach to how I was producing video for them. Uh, we produce video for uh, tape playback and for interactive Laserdisc and interactive CD-ROM. So. It was a complicated process, but it was also part of an effort to try and develop a contract with the clients. So I'll go through some of these and explain how they go, and maybe they'll resonate with uh, formal instruction as well as with training videos as well. So it always starts with thinking it through. The uh, purpose should be clear in the mind of both people. The producer has to understand clearly what the purpose is, and the person wanting the video made has to understand what the purpose is. Um, for the person asking for it, the client I'll call them, or the professor, uh, I always ask them to list all the objectives uh, it will address. And sometimes they get really uh, specific about what the objectives are going to be, but in our discussions, it gets more general over time. Also, they're not always aware of what their intended audience level is going to be. For professors, they have expectations, of course, because they get familiar with their students and they know what they're going to be able to accept. But in some cases, once we had that description and started narrowing it down to what is the audience level for this? When I was doing industrial video, uh, we were always talking about what the audience already knows and what is going to be added by making this video. The presentation style is often a, a good debate because uh, I've had people want to do a game show and I had to talk them out of that. Uh, then I asked them to make what I call a wish list, which is everything they think they want to put in the video. It's a good starting point because it's like a brainstorming session for them. I leave them for a week to talk about this with their colleagues or other people in the, in the faculty, and they come back with wish lists that were, you know, a page or so of things that all have to be in it. And that was a good way for them to start getting some focus, which was the point to this first step. The uh, next one is... Um, well, these are the steps. Now, we don't get to shooting the video until step seven because preparation is how you make good video. Writing down everything you'd like to do, as I said with the wish list, is a great start to talk about everything. And the meeting you have for preparation of that uh, is to discuss all of those items and see how necessary they'll be for illustrating or for expanding the discussion after the video is shown. So it helps them to see that they wanted all this other stuff, but we're going to leave out the fluffy pillows. And that's going to make it more cogent and easier to make the video, but also that the video will be more efficient than the classroom. And then the uh, arrangements um, uh, come later. And everyone wants to go with, well, we're going to shoot here and we're going to get these people. And, I'll and I go, just wait a second. Uh, this list is going to have to be revised a couple of times. Then I ask them to make a visual outline, which is, of course, the order of events, which is a precursor to making a script. And that discussion usually goes two or three times back and forth. They present me with an outline. I start challenging what fits with what and when to present it. And then they go back and revise the outline. And they often take things out. And then we're down to writing a script. Now, that's when the producer actually takes some control. The producer takes that outline writes it into a script and formats it so that when we get to editing or we get to shooting, it's more of a checklist across this off, cross that off. 
and we have this, we have this, we still need to get that. This is a graphic we still have to make, that sort of thing. And once you're into step five, you're past the script. Well, you've got a script you're working on. From that, you're doing scheduling. So we're making arrangements for shooting. Uh, we're getting the materials together. Where are we going to get them from? Or if we have to build them, who's going to make the illustrations? Uh, then we talk about travel and location, narration, graphics, music, other elements that are going to be brought in. I even had animation for a couple of projects. The animation took months to make, and they didn't realize that. They just thought, oh, animation, you just put it in a computer, it comes out. So uh, the arrangements for shooting are, are often the uh, shared obligation. I had a situation where we had to shoot a, a judge and uh, his availability changed on a daily basis. So he was a chief justice, so he had to oversee lots of law. And we would have a Tuesday booked. And then on Monday, his assistant would tell me, uh, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to move this to next week. And then I would get a booking for that, and then we'd have to move it again. So that experience was a surprise to my client that they were finding themselves <laughs> you know, preparing for that day and then, oh, and then prepare for another and, oh. So that is very important for that. The other thing they're not always aware of is that everything needs permission. Uh, you have to have your release forms for anyone who's performing or appearing. And uh, for children, and I shot lots of classrooms and children, uh, you have to have parent permissions. You may have to have permission for locations. In our city, you need a permit to shoot in the subway or on the street. And so the city and the, and the film department uh, allow you to do that. But a lot of people in projects, they think you can just go shoot somewhere and you can't. Uh, we had a production in City Hall, for instance, and uh, I was allowed to shoot in some of the public areas, but never anything in an office or in the uh, uh, areas that, the, where the meetings are held and that sort of stuff. So then you're down to shooting the video. And once you have the schedule in place, you know all the parts that you want to have, you know who and when things are going to happen, you're going to shoot the video. After that, you're going to spend a lot of time reviewing the footage. You shoot a lot of footage usually, or at least good producers do, and they have versions and takes and, and other angles on things. And they also have to review the materials and, and how much is already available or how we're still waiting for this or we're still getting our permission to use that. And then you make a rough edit, usually using the narration from the script as the benchmark of how long the project is going to, how long the playback is going to be. So if we're making an eight minute video about the entire history of the Ukrainian people in Alberta, uh, that narration is going to be pretty terse and it's going to leap over decades and decades of uh, events and things just to get us through the material. And then it, the rough edit will allow you to make that process smoother and it'll allow people to see whether or not what they planned in the script is working with the associated material. You review the rough cut a couple of times and you're allowed to re-edit re and revise and the rough cut is where you do that. And then you get to the final edit with all those revisions included. And the surprising thing about step 11 is that when you have a good editor, everything works really smoothly. Um, when they watch it afterwards, I've had people tell me, well, that's what I imagined right at the beginning of this project. I thought it would look like this. And, and then we know we've got some success here. Uh, how a video gets made uh, was part of the booklet as well, and it often calmed people down because they get very excited about the project, and then they realize there's a lot of work, and then they get worried. And uh, I talk to them a lot about audio, and 
the consideration of places that if you're shooting in a place, say a gymnasium or something, you can shoot it so that you primarily have a person on camera speaking or explaining or a voiceover, but never forget to include the location's audio. So a baseball field to talk about how baseball works, you've got to hear the game. And you can't just have a talk over things like you would a slideshow where there's stills. Uh, the other thing about it is teaching people how to make people comfortable because a lot of people get so focused on doing the project, they forget that these people came to you and they're helping you and you're not paying them usually and that they're giving up some of their time and they're spending time with you. They're probably very interested in watching you do what you're doing. And then when they're in front of the camera, they have their job to do. But you have to make them comfortable. You have to have all their needs accounted for. And if you have changes in the schedule, you have to show appreciation for anyone who's still accommodating you and hasn't bailed because you haven't been able to shoot your, your thing on time because it rained that day. I uh, always tell my profs or any of my clients that I want to uh, show my appreciation in some way for their volunteer contribution. And it's usually in the form of perhaps a gift card, uh, perhaps an occasion or an event to celebrate afterwards or some some way of telling them that we appreciate them. And, and Alex has actually talked about this quite a bit on his his work, is that you have to have that in your mind right at the beginning. How are we going to make people who are helping us make this and, and it's going to be great? How do we tell them we really appreciate what they're doing? And as a volunteer coordinator for many years, I learned all those skills and brought them to this kind of project when I went to work at the university. Uh, and of course, always be ready to change the schedule. People get sick, stuff doesn't work, uh, venues flood or something the day before you're going there. Uh, art galleries suddenly have some major event that they have to push you out of the way. Stuff happens and you always, in the planning process, it's good to have a contingency for almost every day or every part of the process, including a contingency for if they make illustrations or graphics for you and you don't like them. I also have paperwork in my document uh, where I educate people about interviewing and that it's not easy to interview people. And there are, it's a big long page of the do's and don'ts in interviewing and how to behave on camera as well. Because people think it's easy because they have interviews of people standing in a hallway or in their office or in other venues or situations. But the truth of the matter is it's a two-part process. People are thinking about being on camera and presenting well and asking the right questions, and then they're thinking about listening to the answers and, and being inspired or responding to those answers. And only the best practice gets you to being a good interviewer. So I usually run people through what they're going to interview and how they're going to do it, and then I play the part of the person they're interviewing and coach them through the process until they're comfortable and realize how to handle that switch between. Uh, narration is also not easy. Uh, as you've heard from lots of people on office hours, uh, there are people who are professional voices and there are people who know how to take scripts and give them life. And there are people who are famous for being narrators and, and are hired and called upon to be uh, voices for projects. I tell a lot of professors, you know, you speak every day in front of people and you probably have most of the skills for narration. But when you're in front of a microphone, there are a lot of, and in a booth, we had a, a voice booth in our system. 
Uh, once you're in the booth, it's really, uh, it can even be claustrophobic. Uh, it can be tiring and it's a slow and tedious process to get the words from the page into, into speaking. And of course, everybody thinks they hate being in front of a camera. So it is rather difficult to do things in front of a camera and you're very self-conscious. And so I work with my crews to make sure that people are very comfortable before they're on camera. And then when they're on camera, you know, everybody is almost in the dark behind the camera. You don't have anybody else to distract what you're doing or anything like that. Uh, and I also warn them that editing always takes longer than you expect. You think it's only going to take a week to edit eight minutes, but actually it's going to take a month. So be careful and patient that you're not asking to have a delivery date that is way too early for editing. They also need an explanation of how long it takes to set up. So in terms of scheduling, uh, you have a period of time when you got to load in, get everything where it wants to be, and then set it up so that it works and test it and all that. I don't like to have cast or talent in that area before they're needed. So I often have time an hour or maybe two hours before to set up and then have people arrive with us ready to go. And that's also part of that consideration of their time. I don't want them hanging around watching each other do things if they don't have to be there. I also have to explain what time code is. Now it's in the digital world, time code is a little less of a criteria, but when I was shooting a lot of my stuff and particularly with the interactive stuff, you have to have time code. And when you're reviewing the material in the rough cut, uh, you're gonna have time code on the screen. And that's mostly for me and the client to be able to write down areas in the rough cut or the video which are going to get changed or adjusted or additional changes or graphics are going to change, then we know where in the show that is. But it also helps the final edit in that we have all the numbers we need and we don't have to spend time looking for a shot. Licensed music, uh, we were fortunate to be subscribers of two different production music services where you get a pile of CDs and you have all kinds of styles of music and everything. So I would work with them. They would always come to me saying, I'd really like this music to be in the video. And I go, well, do we have license for that? And they go, well, why would we need that? And I go, well, even if you're just using it in your classroom, the permissions need to be there for someone to be able to put music in. So when considering music for mail opening or closing or even music through the whole thing, you've got to have licensed music. Then they're very surprised to find that I can find probably the same or similar music with the same orchestral feel or piano in my licensed music and my uh, production library. Actors, uh, I found, behave like teachers better than teachers act like teachers. And I've shot a lot of stuff where we were doing instructional demonstrations or best practices. And I would have a teacher who insisted to be the person on camera and they would fumble and stop and, and redo and we would work with them much longer than we would with an actor or a professional performer who knows how to remember what they're saying, knows how to address a camera or talk off camera, hit their mark when they walk around and know where the light is. And this is allowing them to focus on giving me a performance. But what I did discover through the years is that if you ever want a parent playing a part, teachers do a great job playing the parent because they inter interface with parents all the time. And they've been exposed to all the different levels of energy that a parent presents or brings, either a passive or encouraging energy or an angry or a frightened energy. And they are able to 
put it at that appropriate level better than real parents do. And uh, actors struggle sometimes to play a parent because sometimes they're a parent as well. It, you know your video is good when it's clear and uncomplicated. It gets to the point and it stays on the point. The concepts are all clear and you've massaged them and revised them until it's actually the essential information and that it speaks at the audience's expected level of sophistication or complication. All of it demonstrates well, it illustrates well. And one of the key things in final editing is that a good editor knows when to leave room for people to think in while watching the video. There are moments when information is presented and then you leave room for people to sort of absorb it, but then you might repeat it or bring another aspect to it or illustrate it in two ways so that you reinforce what you just tried to tell them. It uh, has good narration, which is persuasive, and the people on it are believable that they are experts in the subject and aren't just some actor or even a, an AI robot face. Uh, and that the style of what you're doing is fitting the content. It's also planned well, long before you start. And that's always, an, when I get a professor for a second project, all that training is in them now. They know that they need lots of time to plan, lots of time to script, massage the content, work with people to get schedules. And you get a good producer and an editor. Those two are very key to making a very good video for the classroom. So we'll quit this show and we'll get to questions and things that people might want to talk about here. All right. Our first question comes from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is probably a psych issue, but here goes. I love teaching, but I'm always torn between the need to slow down and the need to entertain. I've made videos for 22 years. How do you quiet the inner voice that's shouting, this is boring, move on? I'm sure Aaron will start us off real good here. So... I'm always moving so quickly in the classroom. I talk pretty quickly um, in person on Zoom or in things like this. I try to slow myself down because I don't want it to sound too um, too fast, especially if somebody is listening to it later and can increase the speed. But in the classroom, it's actually better for them to kind of change things pretty quickly because then more students are paying attention. When you change it up really quickly, they have to focus. Otherwise, they're going to miss something and you might not get to go back to it. I face this all the time in when I'm teaching small groups and I have a timer on the board and I only have 10 minutes to teach them all of author's craft for this whole story. And if I slow down at all, with the exception of supporting students that need it, we're never going to finish it. So it's actually better to keep it moving pretty quickly. Even if it's a video, um, it's a lot better to keep it at a normal, if slightly not faster pace, because students, especially with videos, can go back and replay it if they don't understand it. Absolutely. Chris? Well, to Zach Phillips from my hometown, Philadelphia, I want to say that um, you probably can't quiet the inner voice, but you can change what the inner voice is saying. So I'd like you to experiment with uh, moving away from the this is boring monologue to uh, a different label for what you're feeling 
when things feel like they're moving too slowly. Um, so work on uh, educating the inner voice to say something that's more helpful to you than the uh, this is boring, move on. Thanks, Chris. Uh, John? Yeah, it's really important to have good quality educational videos and educational videos instruct primarily. And in order for that instruction to take place, the learner has to take the information and encode it into their long-term memory. So I think key to educational videos is reducing cognitive load. And, and practically that what that means is don't distract your learners with too much excitement or extraneous material. You want to keep your videos short, you want to keep them focused, and you want to create active learning wherever you can. And what active learning looks like is you want to prompt the learner to evaluate or ask questions or think during the video, and that will help them move that information to long-term memory. Yeah, I get it, what you're feeling there, Zach, and it is a training thing. You have to train yourself to have a pace, and it comes with uh, being able to deliver and be consistent with the information and not pile up too much stuff. I got from the word entertain that you work hard to keep people's attention, and that's teachers are always managing the classroom. So you're obviously focused on making sure that what you're talking about is being received and maybe repeating yourself if you notice people are not paying attention. I think, yes, with videos, you have to have a pace figured out beforehand, and then it helps determine how long the video is going to be. If the video is going to be on too long, uh, the pace can actually be a problem. So you have to have a pace and a, and a timing that fits what you're doing and what you're saying. Uh, and you you shot video already, so you know part of this process, so that doesn't need to be explained. But I think, yeah, the self-reflection on why I'm speaking the way I do and how I pace myself and make sure that everything I'm saying is understood is a whole lot different than conversational speaking. And conversational speaking is as quick as you can get in on the conversation and share it with three or four other people. But with a video, it's all under your control. And you can actually do a take after take until you have a pace that you think is going to work for, the, for your class, because you know your class's ability to receive this stuff. Let's go to the next question. Our next question comes from James Fosslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When we went into the classroom and saw the reels of film loaded up on the 16 millimeter projector, it was like, yeah, a film, TV card as well. Do we signal to students in any way today that they are getting a treat? I think that's a great question because uh, when I was in high school, I was the guy who brought the projector in, loaded up the film and watched everyone lean back and get ready because this is going to be easy. And that for me was always interesting as a person observing my colleagues, my own student group, uh, responding to the idea that this film is just going to be fun to watch. I don't need to really spend a lot of time focus. I guess for me, as a guy who liked media a lot, uh, I was interested in every film that got shown me, uh, chemistry films, uh, psychology films, social studies films. And I actually ended up as a film librarian when it was all done. So uh, I'll let Aaron uh, chime in here. When I think about those days too, I used to love when the TV cart would roll in because usually we were watching a science video and I love teaching science, but I really love all aspects of science. And knowing that 
when I look through different curriculums for science, especially, because that's my specialty in my, in my team, my third grade team, I noticed that some of our materials like videos are so outdated and so fuzzy and the audio quality is horrific at best. Knowing that my kids now know that when I take the time to show them a video and take away from me talking with them and discussing and doing experiments, that it has to be a good video. It has to be. Otherwise, I'm not going to waste my time. Um, in the in thinking about that, one of the programs that we use in my district is um, Mystery Science. And I think it's a fantastic um, supplemental curriculum for whatever you're teaching, uh, especially K through five. They give you videos, but then they have you pause and have discussions. And then they give you an experiment or an activity to do at the end based on the videos. So especially when I'm teaching science, they know that it's a treat because they know an experiment is coming. That's pretty cool. Yes, you got a reward at the end of the video. Uh, I would say, James, there's a natural problem here in that active-passive happens and you, um, you're you active in a classroom because you're, you're responding constantly and re reacting and receiving. We've been trained to watch TV in a passive state where we have a lean back experience and we often go into an alpha state, a kind of relaxed level of awareness where our bodies have sort of stopped and we're just sort of letting the stuff come into our eyes and ears. The children are already trained in terms of how to watch television and they sometimes switch modes. They come from active and when the TV cart comes in and the video turns on, they go into alpha state. And that can actually put people asleep if it's uh, information that's not very current or isn't coming at us at a speed that we're prepared for. So, yeah, we are signaling sometimes that this is going to be a treat, but we're also signaling subliminally that this is a passive watch and you don't have to have an active uh, um, uh, focus for it and that taking notes to it or anything never occurs to you because it's television. It's not classroom stuff. Uh, if you're making your videos compelling and they're uh, built to keep the attention, like you were saying with the entertainment part, um, or your question wasn't, it was a previous question that had the entertainment part. If you stay away from that, then, then you're asking your students to pay attention and you won't have to worry about entertaining them. Uh, we'll go again to the next question. Our next question comes from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. How do you make a classroom video on different facets of home improvement and construction that will motivate students to get their hands dirty on real projects? Aaron, you give it a try first. When I saw this question, one of the first things I thought about was some of the videos that I see on Instagram, little reels of people who are doing home improvements. And one that stuck out to me recently was this, this guy went to his um, pantry and he pushed in on a certain piece and out popped his spice rack. And for me, that was mind blowing. I don't know why, but it was mind blowing. I, because all my spices are in my cabinet. So I'm reaching up and I'm looking through them to get what I need, but to have them all spread out, like come out right in front of me as I'm cooking, that would be amazing. So basically the 
reason I shared the anecdote is that that would make my life easier if I had that in my kitchen. If we were able to show students or propose an idea to them to make their lives easier in some way and then research how to potentially do it and then even have them make a video of themselves making it, it could be extraordinary. Thinking about, I, I know my students have said they would love to build something that could help them get their laundry out of their room without, you know, picking it up and putting it in the laundry basket and then bringing the laundry basket downstairs. But to think about a way for them to manipulate it so that they can make their lives easier would be fantastic. So in that sense, that's what teachers are doing daily if they're connecting what they're teaching to real world questions. So if we're able to make that connection, even in the home for home improvements, if it can motivate them to make their lives easier, students will try it. I like your idea of actually having them shoot themselves doing it because that's a motivation to get your hands dirty and pick up the sticks or hammer the things together or whatever that, that project is. Uh, and as well, it's a science. Uh, it's all about, well, it's about measurement and design and planning and getting something done. And when people get a chance, and, and actually making it a group operation means that everybody gets to reinforce each other. And that's kind of an interesting idea. John, you've got something? Yeah, I would, I would make lots of little videos. And I think what would be really cool is if when the kids come into the classroom, assuming we're talking children, and it's in a video on how to wire a light switch, which is a, a pretty simple home improvement thing. Um, if they came in the classroom and sitting on their desk where they would normally sit was a, a Ziploc bag full of all the tools they need. And so they knew there's something at the end of the video. And then you said, don't touch your bag yet. Let's watch this video first. And then we're going to try it out in real life. I do something like that where there's immediate application with immediate feedback so that you can actually see the result of your work in a practical way as soon as you're done. And may maybe third grade is learning how to wire a light switch is not the best idea, but uh, I'm just spitballing. No, I think that's that's a very good planning process to get the motivation comes before you even watch the video. Uh, I think, yeah, don't touch the bag, just watch the video. And I think that applies to so many other things. Uh, we're going to make cupcakes today. So over on the counter here, we've got all the stuff and we're going to go after it after we watch the video on how cupcakes are made, uh, especially when it's something that a student is going to experience in real life and have to deal with at some point in their life. Um, that kind of stuff. I love the short video thing too. That's, that's important. Aaron, you've got more. Well, so John, they actually try to learn how to um, wire a light switch in fourth grade. That's something that they do in fourth. So third is a little bit young, but to bring it to what we were doing in third grade this past week, I gave them a STEAM challenge. So everybody's talking about STEM lately, um, the science, technology, engineering, and math, but I make it STEAM to add art to it because some kids really just latch onto that part. And while this isn't a home improvement thing, we did, um, the challenge I gave them was you have to make a vehicle that moves without being touched and without a slope. And I just put all the materials on the back table and I said, you have 30 seconds to look, do not touch, go talk with your group. And then when you come up and, and you're ready and you're telling me what you need, you can take your materials. So while that part wouldn't be home improvement, when we finish the project, 
I said, now, how could we apply this to real life? Like, what could you do with this? And that conversation drove a lot of really great answers. Chris? I just had an experience this week with uh, my 20-year-old grandson who had put together a couple of tall bookcases that he bought from Ikea. And uh, part of the safety concern about tall objects, tall pieces of furniture is that they could topple forward. Um, So uh, you need to attach them to the wall, attach the top of the piece of furniture to the wall in a way that will prevent it from tipping forward. Uh, But he didn't know how to locate the studs behind the um, behind the the board, the wall board. Um, and I didn't make a video of it, but I could have. Uh, and I think it's got an attractive quality to it, which is in a way it's, uh, giving kids x-ray vision to be able to see what's invisible through the wall and find out where the, the two by fours are located so that you can attach something to the wall in a way that's uh, much more stable and likely to um, provide the safety factor that we're after. So I I suggest that as a a kind of a nifty uh, applicable project that kids could take home and actually um, use their x-ray vision informed by the the video that shows three, three ways to locate studs uh, that are otherwise invisible behind the uh, the wallboard. It might also be useful, uh, Paul, for you to make videos of the tools needed for whatever project. The, the people are very interested in how the tool works, and if they know all the features of it, uh, it helps them be a better sort of worker. Uh, I know uh, some people... Um, were working on a very specific device and they had to use a drill or a driver. And they didn't know from having used drills for so long that you can change the torque on them. And that torquing is very necessary for some engineering and some specific tightnesses. And this person actually broke the bolt because they didn't have the right torque on it. And this was a big surprise to that person. And everyone else in the room went, Oh, you didn't know about that. Mm. So little videos on how tools work and all the features they, and the safety features, of course, which always comes with tools, including hammers and ladders and all the rest, uh, is probably a good place to start with the videos that would be part of the project and then go from there. John? Yeah, I was just, I keep thinking about Aaron's example with a car and you could, you could, instead of doing a video first and then having the tools on the board or whatever, you could have them experiment first on their own with a goal show a video that maybe shows principles of friction or uh, wind power or something like that, and then have them go back and revise their uh, experiments to see if they how they improved um, would be a, a good way to help reinforce learning over time. Mm-hmm. We'll move to the next question. Our next questions come from me. Uh, what's the rule of thumb for planning to edit a video? How long editing per minute of finished video? It depends. I get to say that now. Uh, if you're going to do Ben-Hur or helicopter shots or all that sort of stuff, um, it's going to be a long time. And editing is actually a sort of, uh, it's, it's like 
pasting collage together. You've got to have, you've got to place everything in the page and then put it on the board and see if this goes well with that and this contrasts that or this color is not. And then finally pulling out the glue and building the collage. So I am an editor by trade and I've shot tons of video in my life. And I learned to edit while shooting that I knew what I wanted from the shot. But I also knew what was going to happen to the shot in editing. And because I had that experience, I can shoot specifically to the edit, know how much of head and tail I want from it, because I know there's maybe going to be a graphic over or a, te- uh, a head or tail for allowing the narrator to speak. And then I go and shoot it. And I think people who get a chance to try editing change the way they shoot things. Uh, TikTok is a great way to practice editing because you've seen how other people do it and you try and imitate the way they do it and you'll pick up a lot of tricks along the way and there's a lot of YouTube videos about editing and and they're sometimes from professionals and sometimes not. Uh, but yeah, how to make it in a, a per finished minute, on average an, an ad on TV, uh, commercial television is between 20 and 30 shots per 30 seconds. So it's almost like a second a shot. Some of them are really fast, some are really slow. Uh, the best commercials, of course, are probably all one shot. That it's just from the beginning of the commercial to the end, it's all just one shot. Very hard to do, needs lots of planning and good actors, but you have that. So if you're editing to fix things, it takes a whole lot longer than if you're editing that was pre-planned well, set up properly, has all the elements in place for you to work with, and then you're just smoothing things out. You're actually ironing the curtain or the clothing and making what you stitch together look great. And you have been stitching together in your rough cut, and that makes you start mentally planning for your finished edit when you hear people respond to the the rough cut, whether they feel it's going too slowly or too fast, and then you're making plans for your next edit. The length of time in some edits are formulaic. For instance, I've done probably, I think it's up to 100. I was asked to shoot people's businesses and make one-minute videos that would go on Yelp. And you would go into somebody's restaurant or law office or any other kind of small business that wanted a video for Yelp, and I had to do it in about 90 minutes, that everything I needed had to be shot in about 90 minutes. And then I had to keep myself from editing longer than two hours. So if I was past the four hour mark, I was not making money, I was wasting time. And I knew when I shot that I would have to be very economical. And I got really good at it, that I would actually be down to about an hour of editing because of the planning I did in the shooting. But if I was fixing things that didn't work, for instance, as I've said before, a lot of people get on camera and they just can't put a sentence together. If I'm patching together five or six different takes, my rewinding and listening and rewinding and listening and choosing and choosing and then replacing and replacing, I'm going to be at it most of a day just to get one or two minutes out of it. So it it is more a case of you'll, you'll be faster in the edit and it'll come out faster if you have good planning but it always takes longer than even the editor thinks. Um, and I can go to the uh, Kila show and I can go to the IBC coverage that OH did. And the editors were all experts. They knew their gear. They knew how to edit. They've done a lot of work in the past. And at the same time, they knew that if we think we're going to have this by 6 a.m., no, it's going to be 8 a.m., don't plan on 6. And then they would edit all night. And sure enough, next morning, they've got three or four things cut and they're ready for you at 8 o'clock. 
I've, I've learned to trust editors because I'm an editor, but it's something that you have to understand is a process of an, analyzing every shot, analyzing how they fit together and being consistent for the purposes that your client gave you for delivering this thing. And in the classroom, yeah, it's sometimes just cut, 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 and it goes really fast. Other times you're putting in illustrations, sliding things around, putting people next to text. You're doing a lot of figuring and positioning and framing. And if you're shooting with that, where you move somebody over so that there's room for the text, then you can have easier editing and, and a lot, lot more planning and a lot less fiddling. John? Yeah, I was just uh, in the chat, Roscoe Jones said that he used plans one hour of editing per minute of finished video. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I had a hairdresser. I think I shot 20 minutes of her pitch and I had to patch it together with cover shots and all the rest to hide the cuts. And it took me most of the day. So in the sense that, that, yes, you can probably plan if you're sort of budgeting, and that's where you do some of this. You make get, uh, best guesses when you're uh, doing an estimate or a budget for something. If you have an hour per minute, that's probably a good rate because some parts of it are going to be easy to do, and then later there's going to be the tedious stuff, and it all balances out to about an hour a minute. So a 20-minute video is going to be 20 hours of editing, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Guy? Yeah, it really depends on the type of project. I mean, when you get into a documentary, you might have a 20 or 100 times the ratio of footage versus your completed project. So for one hour, you might have 20 to 100 hours of footage to sort through. And uh, sp speaking back to where you were uh, discussing the pre-planning, that's where uh, having people that uh, can either storyboard things out so you know how to get from A to C, because sometimes it's that B-roll that you, you forget. And as an editor, you long for that stuff to figure out how to jump from one place to another. Uh, 20 years ago, I was uh, going to all these major cities with the um, uh, uh, DV Revolution seminar tour where we would shoot, edit, and deliver in one hour. So I had to pull somebody out of the crowd, shoot a video with them, and then in front of the crowd, edit, and then output it. And we did it every time, every city. And it was amazing to see everybody's face when it was like, it's and it's done. But we had conceptualized what we were going to do. We knew the uh, the uh, words that we wanted to extract from the interview, and then we were able to just pop it through because we had our titles, we had our graphics, we had our clips. So everything was pretty well planned, and we were able to just bump it out. So for like news, things like that, if you ever watch a news editor, they're very quick. And that's the other thing is you got to know your, your software. I mean, I use a ton of keyboard shortcuts, and so I could just not even look at the keys just da, 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 da. so i can trim i can jump to the next clip i can uh, bounce between the browser uh, the timeline uh, and just it's really it, it's fluid and if you watch somebody like chris fenwick edit i'm sure he's the same where he just jams i mean you don't you don't have to even think about what you're doing you're using a lot of jkl you're 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 watching stuff in faster than real time uh, so it, it, it all just comes down to skill and pre-production I, I think yeah, you're mentioning uh, the 100 to 1 ratio for footage and then having to condense it and, and string it down. Uh, that's that's very popular with documentaries where you're not quite sure what you're going to get. So you shoot long involved shots waiting for something to happen and also events that are happening. So you've got to keep shooting because you don't know how the event's going to finish or uh, how long it's going to go. And so you just got to cover everything and hope later you can trash it. The, yeah, the skill level 
is uh, a key thing with a, an efficient editor knows his gear and he knows the material. Um, my wife is always amazed that I can see frames in broadcast shows or videos or movies. Uh, a single frame goes by and I can see it. And that's just training. Uh, I also see <laughs> uh, flaws in the cut and uh, um, errors in the audio and other, the things that Alex always talks about driving him crazy is the camera has moved and it shouldn't and that sort of stuff. But there's a lot in editing you can't fix. And so you just live with what you shot. Um, we'll go to the next question here. Our next question comes from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Explain how you made that presentation, what went into it, and what roles were required to present it on office hours. I, I work in Keynote, and I have since Keynote was invented, so I'm very comfortable in that form. I also know that putting presentations on Zoom, uh, you have to be restricted by Zoom's capabilities, so I didn't put any dissolves or effects or moves in it. I know people like uh, Richard Lavery uh, does that. Uh, I know that uh, Brian Sands is really good at doing presentations, and I, I admire all their work. The process I went through was to generate the 11 Steps slideshow and bring it to After Hours. And I put it up on After Hours, and there were people there who gave me incredibly good feedback, uh, both in terms of condensing what I was saying on the slides and leave it to me talking, and as well how many things should be on a page for people to read. Uh, three or four items on a page is a nominal level and that allows for larger fonts so that you can have a readable thing through a digital medium. Uh, digital's really sharp, of course, by the way, but sometimes people's own playback doesn't play well because their computer can't handle it. So you, you have to accommodate that. Uh, I did that once and then I came back to office hours with the changes recommended to me and I had a second uh, pair of people give me even further feedback. And um, I'm not going to be able to remember his name, but he does a, a lab here for Ecamm. And he teaches people how to do slideshows with your picture in the corner uh, in a circle and that sort of stuff. And uh, he gave me some really good, uh, really good advice about illustrating what I was talking about. And then I realized if I do illustrations, this is going to get longer and longer. So I just said to myself, if I can keep this to 10 to 12 minutes and it won't bore you guys, uh, then we'll be able to, to get to the questions and, and have the discussion we're having now. So that's the process I went through. I'm very quick with Keynote. I'm very quick with well, my content, of course, was already written, which was back in 1990. So all I had to do was pretty well drag out the 11 steps, shrink them down to bullet points. And I also posted the entire document, the uh, full uh, 11 steps uh, how to make video document is on uh, Discord in the education channel. And you can look it up there and see what I was working with with my professors. But I also put a PDF of the slideshow in there for anyone who wants to catch it up later. Next question. Our next question comes from Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio. Hi, Dave T. You mentioned the use of licensed music in your video. What are the rules or guidelines for fair use of copyright material for education? Fair use is, uh, it, American copyright is different from Canadian copyright and it's different from UK copyright and that sort of thing. So you've got to know your jurisdiction. I'm not familiar with US copyright law, but I've heard of this um, 
fair use guideline, and I understand it's for other people's copyright material to be used for discussion purposes or analysis or in instructional settings. But I've also had lawyers present to us here in Canada that that doesn't apply here in Canada, that getting permission for copyright is a big deal. I also know from having colleagues in the business in broadcast, there are whole departments in our TV studios that review every show's plan and every show's script and is the people who go get the permission. So they'll have a, a staff of about three or four people, the, any productions they're doing, any projects they've got going, they have to show in their script that I want this and I have the permission for it. And if you don't have it, well, then one of the people in that thing helps you figure out who to call, how to get it. I did have one client who wanted to use a Paul Simon song, and he spent a month trying to get Paul Simon to reply, and finally Paul Simon did with a big no, and that was the end. He does not allow people to use his stuff. And that was his position as an artist to be able to protect his his brand and his trademarks. So yeah, there is a thing about licensed music and licensed video or other film clips, uh, promotional material. And I've had clients also bring me other people's stuff and say, can we put this in our video? And I go, uh, have you talked to those people and did they give you permission? And they go, well, no, they'll say no. And I said, well, then I'm going to say no too, because I wouldn't be ethically correct in incorporating somebody else's well-shot video into yours. I could reshoot that video for you at what it's going to cost them, but I'm not going to put somebody else's stuff in if they don't have given me permission. Now, to go to your licensed music, uh, it's actually something the university knew they needed. So we had two TV studios in our university, one that I operated in the Faculty of Education. There was always a public affairs department that had its own video thing so that they could shoot their own presentations about you know, promoting the university on the internet and stuff. And they had a, a production music library license for them as well. Um, we didn't have it where I could share, <laughs> but we did have it where they overlapped enough that they would be able to have the same kind of music as I had. So yeah, the, that's a thing. And I know the laws in the UK are a little different, and I don't want to speak to them. But I would imagine even in Tanzania, there's there's rules about what you can use and what you can't. Aaron, did you have something on that? Yeah, I've um thinking about that for education. From what I understand, all videos and music can be used in the classroom if you're using it for educational purposes and it's for a smaller group of people. It couldn't be that on Zoom you share, you do a movie night and you show like The Lion King. Like you can't do that. But if you're going to show um, like I know whenever I teach mythology, I pull up some of the um, the pieces of the Disney movie Hercules and because it explains it and I give them the script and they're able to look through it and they're able to identify different things. Um, so I believe uh, you can use copyright material in the classroom for educational purposes. You can't charge money for anything. It's a very small amount of wiggle room that you have from what I understand. 
I also caution nonprofit organizations not to use, you know, com contemporary music in any of their work or any of their presentations because they don't have permission to play it publicly. And you really don't know how big your audience is. And this was a problem with publishers uh, when digital came out. They didn't want any of the books to be digitized because then they lost control over the data. And that was a problem as well with us because we had uh, relationships with some of the publications through our professors and we were offering the video and they said, we don't want the video because it's too hard to keep control over the video. Uh, if you put a disc in the back of every book, uh, we don't know where that goes or if it gets put on the internet. So they, they really shied away from that stuff. Next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. How do you keep from being bogged down in the details and focus on important information? Guy? Yeah, one of the tips that I learned was from locally here, we have Microsoft Studios and what was happening was uh, somebody internally would want to produce a video and it would just go on and on and on and on and on and on because they would have revision after revision. So what they did was they said, all right, uh, pretend you have a budget of $75 an hour for pre-production, for editing, for uh, shooting, for animations. And so when you broke it down from the beginning and you said, we're going to put, you know, uh, we have a $20,000 budget, we're going to put X amount of time, X amount of time. And even though it wasn't real money, it was all theoretical, they still did bring in, uh, like I have friends that are audio guys, and they would be brought in for the day and there was a thousand bucks right there just for sound. And so if you got a three day shoot, you got to still budget that out. So uh, getting lost in the weeds is, is really easy when you don't have a complete picture and you, you don't know how to do like an After Effects animation. All of a sudden you're going down that rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, I just spent you know, 20 hours trying to learn how to make a title dance across the screen in a certain way when you could have just hired that out. So there's there's things you just got to be aware of. And this is where a producer can really help you or an executive producer if it's a bigger show to keep you in, in budget. And sometimes things go over budget and you get better have a good reason. I heard a long time ago, the definition of a professional photographer from an amateur is that the professional photographer knows what to delete. Uh, John? I would, I would argue the most important step of creating any video is identifying your goals and um, learning objectives. Specifically, what do you want to be true after the person watches your video? And every part of the video needs to serve that. And if any part doesn't serve it, you need to remove it. And that's the easy way to make sure you don't get bogged down on the, the details of the video content itself. Aaron? Basically everything that John said. And then in education, there's a term called that's means what he said, and that's backward design. You look for where you need to end up. You fill in what you need to to get to that location. And like John said, edit out whatever you don't need. Next question. Our next question comes from uh, me. <laughs> what does the producer do from step two? The producer is responsible for everything. They, if, if it's a commercial production, then they hire the people, they help with casting, they choose a director they are comfortable with, a cinematographer, they get the right audio crew. They are the boss of everything. And they're also answerable to the budget person. That is, there's a guy on almost every production crew who's sitting there watching you work and he's got almost a meter of how much money you're burning doing your job and how many people you've got doing it. So... The producer is ultimately the, the answer to everything. The director is struggling with something or a script is not working right, and the producer can overrule people and say, here's how we're going to do it. 
Now, good producers know how to be tactful about that or how to anticipate that there's problems and know there might be solutions that no one notices, and then they're helpful. Other times, producers have been known to completely ruin a show. So I, I say the producer is a person ultimately responsible, and they, are, they have a finger almost in everything. So it is that producer role that is the trickiest, and a lot of people have um, nervous breakdowns being producers. Next question. Next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. What about getting students to make their own instructional videos? I think that's a great idea. And they can also, I mean, they're familiar with the form. They're familiar with YouTube and TikTok and all the rest, and they might find a better way to do it than you thought. So that's a, an excellent suggestion is getting them to try it out. And then if people know that kids made the video, they're probably going to watch it even more closely. Aaron. I did this with my remote students a couple of years ago. We um, we were doing an informational assignment where they had to teach someone how to do something. It could be as basic as they wanted or as complicated as they wanted, but they had to video themselves doing each step and explaining it as they went. And I remember one of the girls made a video about how to make lemonade. And she was so thorough. She had everything she needed and she used Flipgrid. Um, just a different video recording site that educators like to use. And knowing that they had to write out this, what we would call the script ahead of time of all the steps they needed um, really helped them keep their video focused and organized. So I think it can kind of meld together with writing in order to kind of get the most bang for your buck. Yeah. Thanks for that. Next question. Our next question comes from Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio. Have any of the panelists started or plan to use any of the AI tools to build a classroom video? If so, your steps, and if not, why not? Let's hit that one, John. Yeah, I'm really interested in a tool called Synthesia, which will create a talking head video based on a script. Uh, I'll put a link in the chat, but it's pretty amazing how accurate those are, considering you just give text and it pops out a video. And the next question? Our next question is from Paul Walhus. How does Zoom fit into the instructional video process? Zoom is a live format, so it can fit into the process. In the classroom, bringing in a guest or expert or someone to interview uh, through Zoom is very powerful. Um, if I was available to someone who was teaching media, I'd be able to attend a classroom in whatever city they're in and come in by Zoom. I could have a bunch of material or demonstration stuff behind me or that I could pull out and show or playback videos. Uh, that is certainly a distance learning thing, and it's now become mainstream through Zoom. Tony? Yeah, I just wanted to add that you can also use zoom as your medium for actually doing a video and recording that's true too the zoom recording system is high quality so you can actually do a presentation or share john and i and tony could pick a subject and then present parts of it and then take that recording edit it together and put it in front of people in a classroom and even in uh an industrial training program. That's all the time we have today. Uh, thank you to all the producers who presented us with really interesting questions and challenged our thinking. Um, 
We're going to be back here next week with uh, a little bit of a different take, but uh, we really want to acknowledge that you guys make the show and we try to do subjects that you're interested in. If you have subjects, you can bring them to our discords and put them in as ideas for the show and we'll put them on the schedule and also ideas for guests, but you'll have to give us some information how to reach those guests and get them into the show. So help is, is needed there. Uh, also, uh, thank the people who are in the background, making all this look beautiful and fit together nicely. And, uh, I would like also to thank the people in after hours who gave me help and guided me through the uh, slide process that fits this kind of context and this audience. And also uh, the panelists who come to us every Saturday and help us with the answers here and also uh, have bring brilliant ideas to the foreground for us to present to you. So we'll see you again next week on Education Hour. Thank you, everyone. To our chat reader, I did see one or two things, but I just made the choice not to bring them up.